How does the influx of streaming apps affect artist and composer rights? What are NFTs and what can they do for your music career? All this and more in this episode of the New Music Industry Podcast. Today I'm chatting with entertainment lawyer, music quiz, and artist advocate, Stephen Galliano. How are you today, Stephen? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining me. So we're going to be touching on a couple of subjects that are top of mind for musicians these days. And I'm sure it's something I'm going to start getting a lot of questions about as well. But first, it sounds like you're involved in music in a variety of capacities. So I would love to hear how it is that your passion for music developed. Yeah. Um, I mean, as, as a kid, I was in... You know, my high school band, uh, and I, at that point, was drumming. I had all of these great aspirations to become a rock star, uh, but then, lo and behold, I realized pretty early on that was not going to happen. Uh, so I decided to be tangentially involved in music through the business side, and uh, kind of right after high school and college, I had a uh, I tried to set myself up so that my trajectory would be that way. So I was a music industry major uh, with a political science uh, major as well, so that I would have the pre-law experience. So then I go to, so that I could go to law school, get that experience, and then become a, an entertainment lawyer. I kind of knew pretty early on that I wanted to be. Uh, on the business side of music. So that was the the path I saw and I took it. Well, that's quite relatable. And I do think there are a lot of artists and bands that sort of come to that point of going, hmm, I'm not sure we're going to make it. But what was it for you? What was that moment when you realized that was the case? I had a music industry class my first year of college. And as a drummer, you know, I'm listening to all of these breakdowns of copyright. At that point, I didn't even know there were two sides to a copyright. Um, and it suddenly dawned on me that drummers don't really get writer share in publishing. Generally, that's not the case, unless they're a part of the band, in which case they're just splitting it. And um, yeah, it started to really dawn on me that one, the avenues for actually collecting money as a drummer are seem to be less. And then two, I was just bad at drumming. So <laughs> that's kind of uh, the overarching issue there. And then that transition from being an artist yeah. to going into the music business, I don't think that's a transition that people take lightly, but was that something that happened fairly organically for you? I mean, uh, much the same way I assume a lot of artists realize their passion early. You just there are things that spark your interest and you find yourself kind of diving down rabbit holes uh, for. And uh, I've, I've felt this in some ways in music, you know, when you're like digging through someone's back catalog and you realize like, oh, I really care about music or I really care about this specific genre. I, I was noticing similar things on the business side. I was reading a lot of books about you know, artist management or um, U.S. copyright law, even as, as a a young guy. Um, and I just tried to, you know, notice that and notice where my, uh, interests were lying and where I was spending my time. And it was like, well, if I, if I care about this and I'm doing this on my own free time, I might as well try to make a career out of it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think we all have those things that we would potentially do without any payment, just because of the fulfillment and sense of reward that we get from it. Now, I wanted to ask, Spotify and Apple Music are among the top music streaming apps right now, and a lot of artists are trying to claw their way into playlists and grow their following. It doesn't appear as though this trend is going anywhere soon, so how does the influx of streaming apps affect artists and composer rights? Well, first off, let me just say, uh, I'm talking here solely on behalf of myself, not on behalf of my companies. Uh, with that legal qualifier out of the way, um, streaming, I mean, generally, I think has been a great boon to the industry. Um, you know, at least since Napster, we've seemed to, uh, you know, particularly in the last few years, really uh, relied on streaming for income sources. That said, there's definitely work to be done in terms of, you know, uh, getting writers their fair share. Um, but I think, you know, in, in general, the streaming apps are helpful in aggregate. I think, you know, if you're relying just on one, it's probably not enough. Um, and again, there are, there are thresholds that, a, you know, a commercial artist needs to reach to even make that living wage. Uh, but I would say in general, I'd rather have the streaming applications than not, if that's even, you know, a dichotomy we wanted to discuss. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is very much an artist-specific um, issue, not an issue, but it's it's specific to each artist and the way they want to exploit their own creative output. Um, I I view streaming apps as a part of the whole, not necessarily uh, the one thing you can rely on. You know, I've talked to some artists who seem kind of reluctant to put their music out there, if only just because they're worried about their ideas being copied. And the thing that I often say, though, is that like, maybe if you wait two years, your unique idea or the thing that you think is so unique might not even be that unique anymore. And by that point, someone else has already come up with that same idea. I mean, it's very possible. There's, I mean, think of the amount of musicians even just amateur musicians who are recording stuff and immediately posting it to the web and something like a tiktok where like we really are getting almost instantaneous uh musical output you know just from a copyright perspective if that if you put that in tangible form boom you, you're the creator so in some ways it is important to you know immediately not immediately but as soon as practical practicable release your music um, i think it's uh no longer a question of whether you should be releasing on these streaming platforms it's just like you know how fast can you do it with still releasing a, a high quality product yeah i think you really kind of nailed it on the head there so about a month ago i was watching one of my favorite marketers live streams and he was talking about nfts or non-fungible tokens my initial reaction was basically it sort of seems like this is kind of like ebay except for digital content but nfts are kind of a big deal right now and they have a growing presence in the music industry so that seems as good a place to start as any what are nfts well i'll start with this it, it's difficult for me and i would expect almost any attorney to speak on this with authority because they are so new and uh, the technology is constantly evolving. But effectively what it is, 
non-fungible token is a unique, uh, and that's an important word, um, product that has its own identification tied to the blockchain. So any blockchain really that has a quote unquote smart contract functionality, which basically just means like um, you can set how the asset is uh, transferred or recorded. Um, any blockchain technology can set this up. And then the token itself, it, it's interesting. Uh, I'm seeing at least, and I'm just going to speak specifically with, with music content. I'm seeing this being presented in, in two ways. One is the token is a collectible. So effectively like, you know, a limited edition vinyl that you're buying, but it's only in the digital space. So you pay that money. Uh, the blockchain records that you are the quote unquote owner. So again, um, it's good for transparency purposes to see who who the actual owner is, and if they resell it, the the purchaser will now be listed as the the owner. Um, so that's one side. It's a collectible, almost like buying and selling, um, you know, pins or whatever. But then the other side, there's some people who are starting to uh, use these to potentially sell copyright, which I think is you know a much more complex issue, and it really um, opens kind of the floodgates I see to copyright issues, um, both in terms of if, if someone's purchasing the NFT and thinking they have copyright ownership, or if they do have copyright ownership, what sort of rights are they allowed to grant to later on purchasers? Are they allowed to grant, you know, let's say a synchronization license on behalf of the, the original author? Um, it really just opens up the floodgates to to a bunch of questions, specifically on those tokens where copyright ownership is being sold. Um, I think right now it seems like most of the tokens that are being sold are um, effectively digital collectibles, and that does make sense in a way. It's a great way for an artist to um, you know market themselves directly, potentially get money directly, because uh, the uh, money will flow directly to the initial creator if they've built that into the smart contract. Um, but it is definitely a really young nascent field that we're just not sure how it will pan out. I don't know, you know, how involved performing rights organizations are, any, you know, collective management organizations are, how involved they are with you know, potentially uh, interjecting in future sales. I, the rights are all still up in the air in many ways. Um, so we're going to see. But it is exciting and it does uh, seem like it could be a potential, you know, new growth area. So everyone's waiting with bated breath to see how some early entrants uh, are proceeding. Um, but a, a lot of it is just we're going to have to wait and see and work out the kinks as we're going. Uh, and that's kind of how we've been treating it on our end. Yeah, I do know that copyright has had to play catch up in a lot of ways, especially with the emergence of Napster and other streaming platforms and digital downloads and things like that. So it would be amazing to navigate this new field of NFTs with more ease and readiness and preparedness. Yeah, we'll see. It is, I think Napster is a great point. 
I personally noticed that it does feel like um, because of Napster and you know the relative lateness to the game and handling that medium shift, um, I, I feel like a lot of people are trying to jump on this early to make sure you know those same failures don't happen again. Uh, because the music industry is, you know, is kind of notorious for being very late to the Napster game and handling those rights. So I, I think it's um, been a positive sign for me to see a lot of people talking about this to be what seems to be early on in, in the process. And hopefully, you know, those same failings in the past won't occur here because everyone does seem to be on top of it and discussing it like we're doing here. I mentioned that I'm on a certain marketer's live streams, usually on a weekly basis. But anyway, one week he was giving away NFTs and I ended up winning an NBA top shot NFT while on the show. And then I tried to flip it right away, but no action was happening. Despite the fact that I'd heard some people were making six figure deals on the platform. I think the top shot example is, is a good one uh, in terms of, you know, how it can immediately be accessible to most people. Like I think thinking of it as like a trading card makes perfect sense from a collectible standpoint. Um, and it doesn't involve, you know, those complex copyright laws and, you know, all of the different revenue sources, it's simply just like buying and selling a collectible. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of that in the short term and we'll see how it pans out in the long term. What does the rise of NFTs and music distribution platforms mean for artists with regards to compensation they receive? Distribution platforms, I'm going to just treat separately. And I, I think it's a great question. We should talk about both of them. Uh, NFTs, yeah. um, sp specifically from what I'm seeing right now, it, it does, particularly for an independent artist, seem like a great way to collect money directly and immediately. Um, you mm. get paid you know, as soon as that, Say initial sale happens, the, um, and then depending on what smart contract you use, you could potentially just automatically embed in the smart contract additional payments to yourself every time there's a resale. So let's say every resale happening thereafter gives you 10, 20%. Um, it's a great way to collect that money directly. Um, and uh, it does raise some other issues, which is, you know, like how are your uh, co-writers and you know mixers and engineers on your tracks being uh, compensated it's probably going to be directly through you so the money comes to you you pay out to them um, but i think it it's just a new opportunity and a new avenue to collect income um, on distribution platform side if we're talking you know something like the orchard or tunecore um, the I mean, uh, it's kind of a common refrain now, but the amount of different distribution platforms is has never been, you know, larger. And I think it's only positive for an artist. You have all of these different opportunities. You can forum shop effectively between different platforms and try to find something that really suits your needs. And you know, most of them um, do a pretty good job. They have good connections with all of the different. Uh, digital service providers. They give you pretty good rates on the back end, particularly as an independent artist. You know, yes, oftentimes they're not doing the marketing for you, 
but as a, as a younger artist, as you know, just your kind of standard, let's say, studio musician, it's it's a great way to uh, be able to collect all that money on your own and with economies of scale. You know, I don't expect someone who's a session musician to be reaching out to every you know um, different DSP in like Germany or something. Uh, it just makes way more sense to have a one institution doing it for you that you know is good at it um so i am very happy with what i've seen over the past 10 years in the rise of distribution platforms for independent artists there's still definitely um a huge gain to be had by going to a major or going to you know a traditional label or publisher because they have you know further connections they have all of the marketing skills and you know the acumen there but as you know a new artist who's trying to make it it's a great way to get your music out there yeah i like what you said about music distribution i think you know there used to be some horror stories about really royalty collection takes so long or i rarely get paid or i don't get paid on time or i'm not getting paid what i owed and i think there's just fewer and fewer of those kinds of stories whether you take with you know CD Baby or TuneCore or now just your kids risen to popularity yeah. because of their their unlimited uploads for one one yearly fee or even Ditto Music now which offers something very similar you can get a, a fairly comparable service and depending on the service you choose you can get extended distribution it's always pros and cons though some of them do a little bit more for you and some of them do a little bit less I think it's very much you just got to figure out what works for you. Uh, and let's see what you like the best. I will say there is definitely a move towards transparency in all of these platforms. I think it's generally industry wide. So, you know, those, those horror stories about, you know, <laughs> over years, no one was telling me anything are few and far between. Yeah. No, that's that's definitely good news. I even, you know, at one point, and this opportunity is probably still there to do like boutique music distribution for independent musicians, simply because there are lots of places your your music distributor doesn't get your music out to. But I think, you know, you'd still have to weigh the value of it and the cost of it and what sort of destinations, you know, the music would be would be sent to and whether it would benefit the artist. So but it was, yeah, it was it is definitely important in terms of destinations to look at where and what um, partners they already have, all these distributors, you know, to see what countries they're distributing in. That's always an important part, which most people don't really take a second to look at. Yeah. Want to make sure they're reaching all those major territories. Yes, there are some territories that will matter less, you know, uh, but uh, I think you could probably guess all of the big music territories right off offhand and most people wouldn't be surprised to see what's big um us uk germany japan south korea uh you're getting to these major territories and as long as your distributor can reach out there then like you're in a great place and again 10 20 years ago that just wasn't available you Hmm. could not immediately with a click of a button upload your whole album and then immediately have access um in you know a foreign territory so it's, it's incredible when i think about it 
It is. It is. That's a very good point, actually. And kind of going back to what was said about NFTs, I think, you know, we kind of painted the picture that this could be a nice side income for musicians. In fact, in some cases, it could end up being pretty lucrative. I, I'm, I guess my concern is like, I've had people ask me about it and then I go, well, do you have an online following? And they'll go, um, not really. And so for, for artists like that, I'm guessing that turning NFT into a lucrative enterprise could be a ways out just because they actually need a way to draw attention to their content. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's, I mean, there's also what are called gas fees, effectively transaction fees um, that can be prohibitive in some instances. If you have to pay $400 to put your token up on uh, a platform in the first place, um, that that can add up very quickly. Mm. So there's, there's definitely a, a threshold that one needs to meet. And uh, I would guess that threshold is not only financial, but as you alluded to also in terms of fan base, you need a certain amount of followers to make the the minting the, the first sale actually effective yeah there's also something to be yeah, said exactly. about um ah, once once the coin is up or the token is up um are we going to see a drop in the price of these tokens i mean the a lot of the news that was made about all of this was because you were seeing seven, eight figure sales of tokens for that's right. You know, Kings of Leon or something. Um, uh, it's in, it'll be interesting to see what happens once the, the hype kind of wears down and see where that market reaches in sort of a stasis level. Um, well, again, we're waiting and seeing on all of this. Yeah. My thinking is along the same lines though. So this is kind of a curiosity question as an entertainment lawyer. What are some of the top issues artists come to you with? So I started my career at, at a boutique law firm representing artists right. um, and I have now moved in house. So uh, I'm no longer representing artists directly. You know, we, we work with artists. Uh, yeah. So a little bit different, but um. <laughs> I was trying to think like it, it is really just a kind of an understanding of how all of the money flows together. It's oftentimes difficult for an artist and really anyone to conceptualize how many truly different revenue streams need to be monetized in order to make a successful career. Um, because we're now in the streaming business where we're talking, you know, fractions of pennies and earnings uh, per play, you do need to have this overall aggregate idea of how monies are earned and it, it's often difficult just to conceptualize so mm -hmm. a, a lot of my job is making sure that you know our company now and, and other times artists know all of the different performing rights organizations they need to be applying for and with uh, all of the different you know, collective management neighboring rights organizations um they need to make sure, again, their distribution is worldwide. They need to thoroughly understand both the publishing aspect of their career and the, the label side, the master sound recording exploitation. Yeah. And when you really break it down, like in each one of these, just 
on publishing, half of the business, like, you know, there are different revenue streams. You've got mechanicals, you've got sync, you have performing income. And in each one of those individual streams, you have, uh, you know, smaller segments, whether it be by territory or by usage type. So at a high level, you kind of understand it's masters and publishing. But then when you really dive down into details, the, the tree, so to speak, becomes uh, extensive. And it's just conceptualizing again and understanding where all those rights are and who needs to register. I, in many ways, I'm just like an auditor. I'm just making sure that like you've got everything covered. Mm. Yeah, I bet artists appreciate that though. And and that's the kind of stuff that I would not call myself an expert in, but stuff that I still have to know when artists come to me going, what about this? What about that? What about internet radio? And I'm like, okay, so you got to go to sound exchange. Are you signed up with the PRO yet? You're going to have to go sign up with the PRO. Uh, have yeah. you, do you have someone collecting your music publishing royalties? No, not yet. Okay. Well, see if your music distribution company does it. And if not, go and check out this one, right? It's just, it just goes yeah. on and on. Same with music licensing and placements. That's going to be probably a relationship with another two or three companies. So it's all interrelated too. You have yeah. to know what copyrights are available, what's exclusive, what's not exclusive. Um, so, you know, in many ways I, I do suggest anyone who's who's reached a level where they can afford to buy and pay for professional help to either hire an attorney or hire an experienced consultant, manager, mm -hmm. just someone who can guide them along the way. Because frankly, yeah. international copyright law is so complex and um, confusing that I don't, I personally don't want the artists that I love spending their time doing this. Yeah. I think they should yeah. have an understanding of what's going on, but like it, if this is my whole career, just trying to figure this stuff out, I can't imagine what it'd be like to be a, a performing musician and try to learn all of this stuff. There's, yeah. just, there's just not enough time. So in many ways, I and all of the business community are here, like yourself, to help artists with their career so they can focus on what we all know and love, music. Exactly. You know, and a music career is definitely built on a few pillars. You got to have the skill, talent, uh, performance, experience, all that rolled into one. You got to figure out digital marketing some way or another, even if you get help. <laughs> but it can be fun yeah. to do, do it yourself, at least some of it. And and then you got to continue to expand out. You got to know your just, I think what you talked about is basically a pillar all, all its own is what are the revenue streams, monetization, copyright, all that kind of stuff. And then networking and connections without that, I just see so many artists stumble and I, I do internalize or I do understand just how hard it can be to reach out and say hi and shake hands and stuff like that. But for me, that was the biggest difference. Like I got to the point as a solo artist where I didn't book any of my own gigs. I just got referrals from other band leaders and, and that worked out great. Those were some of the best gigs came from. So <laughs> from the connections, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Completely agree. I mean, it is, a, it is very much a, a relationship business. I think that's just a part of music in general. Yeah. You know, people it's, it's a communal experience and that doesn't only relate to listening and playing music. It's also, you know, everyone working in the industry as well. Absolutely. So I think, 
I need to circle back to the to the issue of copyright. That is something our artists do ask a lot about. So I think if you can just cover a broad overview of, of what matters to to the artist, we don't have to go super deep into it. But sure. Um, well, at, at the highest level, all music has effectively two copyrights embedded therein. One is the sound recording. And that is the individual recording at that one point in time. It's what you hear when you click a track on Spotify, when you drop a needle on the vinyl. Um, that's the sound recording. That is also what record labels exploit. And when I say exploit, I don't mean, you know, in some negative sense. I mean, that's what we collect money from. Yeah. Uh, on the publishing side, there is the, the musical work copyright. So that is what can be written down and transcribed is effectively uh, what can be put on sheet music. So that is more of the, the like theoretical intellectual property um, and publishers generally collect uh, on that side. So the business really did separate into two specific branches collecting on both of these two separate copyrights. Now in the U S their uh, section 106 of the Copyright Act has um, a bunch of different, uh, six different exclusive rights that an artist has. And those rights can be exploited on both sides, both master and publishing. Um, I'm pulling this up right now. Uh, copyright. Hmm. Hold on. Just so I can read them directly here. Uh, if you're ever interested in a fun read, and by fun, I mean really, really dull, I'll <laughs> direct you to uh, Title 17 of the U.S. Copyright Act. It mm -hmm. is a page turner for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, the exclusive works for an author in, in copyrighted works in the U.S. are the right to reproduce, the right to prepare derivatives, uh, the right to distribute by sale of the public. Uh, in the case of literary, which is in this case, it would be um, your musical work, the, the publishing side. Um, the right to uh, display publicly. Um, sound recordings also, this is specific to sound exchange. Um, you have the right to display publicly by digital audio transmissions. Hmm. So interestingly, in the U.S., we don't really collect what are called neighboring rights on uh, the masters other than in the online format and like you're not getting these public performance rights from radio so to speak um whereas a, a lot of the uh rest of the world sorry using my background um <laughs> a lot of the rest of the world will collect public performance rights just like they would for the uh musical composition kind of going all over the place here there are uh, pretty complex sub copyrights yeah. um, rights within the copyright law 
that do get very issue specific. So when when you're dealing with these, it's often a good good idea to have counsel to have at least like you know a record label or a representative who has experience with these because they are complex just within the U.S. And then once you get into international copyright law, you really do need foreign uh, representatives to to know that local territories rights. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anything that's, specific that's, that you think artists may have questions about? Hmm. I, I think just the most common question is, you know, how do I copyright my songs, which is hmm. pr- pretty basic. And, and then how do I ensure that, you know, I can, I can maintain those rights and people don't just copy my music fair, you know, that's, that's definitely yeah. a concern. Um, so there's, there's the creation of the copyright, the registration, and then there's the um, main maintenance. For the actual creation, anytime you put something in what is called fixed and tangible form, you have a copyright. Um, fixed and tangible being not necessarily like, you know, you've etched it into a vinyl, but anytime you've recorded, even digitally, uh, you have that copyright. Now, in the U.S., in order to sue for protection of your rights, you do need to register it. And that, that was fairly recent Supreme Court opinion. Makes sense. Um, and a registration is, uh, it does cost money. I mean, it's, it's like, I think it's 50 to $100 um, for standard registration with um, the U.S. Copyright Office. But it's a pretty straightforward process. And thankfully, if you go online, it it does lay out a lot of the uh, process and they're pretty good at explaining it. There are also things called circulars that are uh, distributed by copyright office that give you kind of like a non-legal breakdown of how to do different things within copyright, how to just copyright a sound recording, how to copyright a musical work and it'll actually break it down for you to make it easier uh in terms of maintenance there's not much you have to do to maintain a copyright once you own it it's not like a trademark where you need to go out and continue to exploit and stop other people from using your trademark which is really nice um at least on the copyright side once it's registered it's registered yes someone can refute that registration um but having the copyright registration in hand gives you what's called a rebuttable presumption. So it's effectively up to that refuting party to prove you wrong rather than you going the other way. Um, yeah. Maintenance is not too much of a problem with copyright, but as soon as you get that initial registration, you're, you're in a good place. It's also, it's a bar that most people don't ever reach. So, um, hmm. power to all those artists who are actually doing the registration process themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's perfect. And I think it puts a lot of minds at ease as well. Uh, I'll probably just ask a few quick fun questions and then we'll, we'll yeah. pretty much wrap cool. up this interview. The The first one is what is the last YouTube video you watched? Uh, I actually, <laughs> every once in a while we have copyright infringement claims come in. Uh, so I was on a big YouTube kick last night going through a bunch of infringing uses. Uh, I won't say what those are, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I do happen to find myself often on YouTube 
seeing if one of our works is infringed or if it's, you know, just an improper claim. Yeah. That's a legal response there. Absolutely. <laughs> well, just like me, I'm, I'm, I'm going down the paid newsletter track right now and I'm looking to get that set up, but you know, a lot of, I'm just watching and, and trying to figure out what, what I'm going to do with it and, and the cadence of it and how am I going to promote it and all that kind of stuff. So same, same, you know, I end up watching a lot of business stuff. Yeah. And then what is your daily routine like? Daily routine, um, wake up, try to wake up early because mm-hmm. uh, we do a lot of work uh, in the UK as well. And, and I'm here in California, so I have to wake up earlier to, to reach them. Uh, but just two espressos maybe just to wake me up. Um, I try to exercise and then it's right to emails and mm-hmm. getting through the work of the last day. Um, you know, it, it is a lot of work. It's something I enjoy, so it's not too, you know, tiring. But I think it, I found it's important to for me to keep exercising just to keep my mental acuity up. The exercise seems to help. That's something I've found out relatively recently, unfortunately, too late <laughs> in life. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I hear you though. Um, meditation and exercise and actually getting outside into the sun, all that has proven quite crucial. It's like some, yeah. some days I'm like, Oh no, I know I overdid it. I had too much caffeine and I feel terrible. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, tomorrow, not only am I going to make sure I get good enough sleep, I'm also going to make sure that, uh, staying off the caffeine, getting some exercise, meditating, doing all the right things. So do the meditation yeah it, i think all together it's just it's helpful yeah um, yeah it's been i will say it's been surprisingly difficult to get out during the pandemic even with sun outside uh you gotta make a conscious effort i agree i agree it still requires a, a conscious effort and some days you just don't feel like it or it's like <laughs> it feels like an indulgence to take an entire hour out for yourself or whatever it ends up being yeah Totally get it. Feel that. And then I'm sure you'd have a few, but what books have helped you on your journey? Oh, I've got a huge list. Mm-hmm. Probably a couple of them are behind me right now. Yeah. Um, the Bible, the music industry Bible here in the States is, um, you know, let's see if I have it. All you need to know about the music business by Don Passman. Of course. Yeah. That's always number one. And even as a lawyer, I, I, I refer to that fairly frequently. Um, if you want to go a little more in depth, there's Music, Money, and Success by the Brabeck Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, that is sort of like uh, Passman's book, but just you know more thorough in its details. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also probably twice the size. Wow. Um, let's see what else. I recently, and this is legal specific, but there's uh, Nimmer on copyright law, which is a treatise of copyright law. I mean, it's probably like thousands of dollars to actually own. I have a license subscription to it, um, but it is the most thorough um, writing on copyright law anywhere. So I do find myself turning to that a lot, particularly for uh, you know those fine nuances that you, you only come only common in front of me 
you know, once in a couple of years. Hmm. Um, but all you need to know about music business is required reading as far as I'm concerned for anyone in the business, not just lawyers, but literally anyone, musicians, songwriters. Yeah. And it's actually a good read too. I, I felt yeah, like fun. as I was beginning the process of reading that book, it just struck me that, wow, this contains something that my books sometimes do not, which is personality. <laughs> I just thought to myself, wow. So, but I can't, I can't pull it off in writing. So yeah, <laughs> I get it. And, uh, and I have five books at this point. So, you know, I, I've kept improving as a writer. I would say even in this last year, I've made uh, leaps and strides in that, in that regard, but it's so cool to, to kind of tap into those other resources and go, Oh yeah, this would keep the reader's attention a little more. So <laughs> What have you enjoyed most about, uh, or like in your books, which one have you enjoyed most? What topic has been the most rewarding? The ones that I've, that I've written. Yeah. Um, they, they're all definitely connected to, to, you know, artistic success. I think, you know, I'm, I'm still very proud of my first book, the new music industry, which, ended up being 66,000 words. So, so definitely a book, you know, a, a real, yeah. <laughs> real length book. And, and it, and it took two, two to two and a half years and it wasn't always easy to write. I just kind of had to keep going with it. And yeah. in, until I kind of came up with, with the idea of, Oh, okay. So each chapter is going to be 5,000 words. And so then I'm looking at the chapters that don't have that amount and I keep, pounding away at it until until it was done and so many things that i predicted in that book be it you know streaming or like novelty so-called novelty acts like mm. lindsey sterling and and and, and macklemore and pomplamoose that i pointed out to people these guys are going to be big guess what happened they are you know profit yeah so i'm yeah i don't know if i'm a futurist or not i'm just saying a lot of things that i pointed out in that book ended up coming true and then my my most recently completed work was was the music entrepreneur code and i'm and i'm definitely proud of that one too it's it was designed to be a very straightforward to the point how-to guide on setting up your, these are the critical elements. These are the critical steps and just no fluff, no BS. That's, that's how it was intended. And, and yeah. I think through much editing, I was able to achieve that end. I mean, it's important to get to the point with a lot of this yeah. is it's already so difficult to get through. I know myself, I'm always looking for those, uh, you know, right to the point descriptor. So, yeah. Thank you for helping the industry. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a service and it's a privilege and it's an honor for sure. Yeah. So, you know, thanks for your time and generosity, Stephen. Is there anything else I should have asked? No, I think this was, was a great conversation. I appreciate you having me on. It was. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for being on the show. So if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and you're looking for direction in your music career, I want you to head on over to musicentrepreneurhq.com slash special. Lately, I've been helping musicians with everything from technical issues concerning live streaming to getting focused on the right thing in their music careers. If you're looking for personalized coaching, head on over to musicentrepreneurhq.com slash special now. This has been episode 237 of the New Music Industry Podcast. I'm David Andrewit, and I look forward to seeing you on the stages of the world. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening. Music in this episode was brought to you by Brian Young. Wherever you're listening to this right now, please consider leaving a five-star review and comment to help us get the word out about the podcast. Thank you.